1: Welcome to the New Books in Economic and Business History on the New Books Network. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and today I'm meeting Dr. Amanda Ziafon to talk about her book, Counter-Cola, A Multinational History of the Global Corporation, published in 2019 by University of California Press. This book is a great source to study the history of globalization and global capitalism through the analysis of the particular history of the US headquartered and textbook case multinational, the Coca-Cola Company, through the 20th century. Countercola looks at how the strategies of the multinational company, mostly devised at its headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, developed in Colombia and India as nationalism, financial dependency, workers unrest, social movements, and health considerations unfolded and were opposed to the overarching and assumed benefits of the multinational in both locations. Amanda Cfon is a cultural historian of capitalism, especially interested in culture industries and the role of media in constructing meaning around economic and social relations. Amanda Siafon is PhD in American Studies from Yale University and currently she is an Associate Professor of Media and Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Amanda, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Paola.
1: Why don't you start a little bit with that, with your background, a little bit about yourself? Okay, so... As you know, I, I I teach in
0: a media and cinema studies department, but I teach um, a lot of history classes. I teach uh, both media history, but also um, the role of of media in a larger kind of broader cultural history in the twentieth century. I am interested in uh, both pretty materialist histories, like about the political economy of, um, the United States and the United States in the world in the 20th and 21st centuries. And so I'm interested in media industries. I'm interested in, um, the kind of cultural production and communication of, of companies and states, right? Governments, um, in, in that time period. And so I, but I have these sort of, it feels like dual, two disciplines of, um, of history and media and communication studies that I've sort of been working across, um, since, since I was an undergrad student, my, my undergraduate degree is in American civilization. And my, my undergraduate thesis was a, a history of Spanish language television in the United States as a kind of transnational industry, you know, the, the transnational text and the transnational audiences that, uh, comprised what we think of as, as Spanish language television. I was interested in from the seventies uh, through the nineties. And I, I then went to work in television in corporate television at CBS actually, uh, after graduation. And then pretty quickly fled, fled back to the Academy as I was, you know, interested in, in sort of critical questions about the role of media industries, um, and the role of, um, culture in sort of bolstering, bolstering, especially, uh, certain economic ideologies in the United States, and so I went back and, and got a degree in American Studies, where I was similarly interested in the, the role of the United States in the world, especially U.S. Um, Latin American transnational relations, questions of political economy, and questions of um, cultural cultural production. And when I think about culture, I'm I'm, I'm interested in uh, culture you know as product of of media industries or culture industries but i'm also interested in in sort of kind of popular culture and the the culture and and communication and media that we produce uh you know as a as a human community and um so i'm interested in in lots of the ways that we make meaning of um from our political economy and understand it and critique it and in some ways um, can produce challenges to it and in, in what we produce uh, collectively as well. And so all of those interests both, um, have drove this project, this, this book of Cola, but also continue to kind of motivate me and and my positionality as a, a historian in a, in a media and um, cinema studies department.
1: Nice. Um, I would love to hear more about that, um, intermission in TV. um, <laughs> um- but why? Uh, can you start? Can you start with a little bit of uh, of an introduction, and um, or how, or explaining how your book came about? Countercola and multinational history of the global corporation. How how did you? How did this project start?
0: Well, I, it started off as my dissertation in graduate school, and and I, I sort of joke that people sometimes think I must have been denied sodas as a child. And that sort of drove my, uh, you know, passion to write about, uh, Coca-Cola or some sort of, um, kind of takedown of the company. And and it really was not that at all. I don't think I would have imagined that that's what I would have been writing about when I, um, started graduate school. And in some ways it was a very kind of, um, kind of conscious, calculation as I was trying to figure out what topics would continue to motivate me right through a dissertation into, into a book and hopefully, you know, further research, I was trying to find a topic that, that held, you know, the possibility of, of kind of analyzing it from the multiple facets that I was interested in. So, you know, I was interested in writing about, a a corporation because again, it was interesting questions of political economy and, and the role of corporations and, um, the the changing and growing power in the 20th century and, um, you know, what that meant for, uh, people's lives. And so I was interested in in writing a kind of business history, um, and wanted to, to think about writing about a a single um, company in order to tell a kind of larger history and not having it be like too diffuse, right. That, that a single company kind of could focus, um, my attention, allow me to, to write a kind of broader sweep of, of history. Um, I was interested in because I'm interested in, uh, I like writing about culture and I like th- writing, you know, analyzing cultural texts, but also because it's a great way into talking about how people understand and make meaning, um, and think about, uh, companies and um, economic relations i was interested in a company that produced a you know a lot of culture that had um, you know meaning around it uh, that was popularly understood you know there's a ton of companies that uh, whose dealings are much more obscure or you know sometimes purposely uh, secretive or cloudy and there's plenty of you know activities that the coca-cola company that you know, participates in that, that are obscure purposely, but they also produce a ton of cultural texts, right? They put a lot of information about themselves out there they market themselves specifically for us to understand them um, in a certain way. And so it provided a lot of material, a lot of fodder, right? For um, kind of readings and avenues for thinking about how people related to the company through the texts that they put forth. And there's also a ton of popular media and popular cultural texts produced you know, using the kind of iconography or the branding of the company, whether that's films, right, or graffiti, um, that you know people use the the image of Coke, right, to express themselves, and so that um, allowed me to get a sense, right, of of how the the company meant to various artists and cultural producers and perhaps audiences then at different moments, and so that was that was of interest um, to me. I, I obviously wanted a company that was. A multinational company because I'm you know I'm interested in uh firstly the internationalization of, of um uh US corporations in the twentieth century, which um, you know, has has increased dramatically and Coca Cola in some ways is kind of iconic in that. Uh, but it also sort of demonstrated various kinds of um, stages of that globalization, and so that was very appealing to me. I'm especially interested in, you know, U.S. Latin American history, and um, like a lot of U.S. companies, uh, some of its earliest growth was was into Latin America, and so that allowed me to talk about that. Um, and perhaps most importantly, I was interested in in writing about um, people's understandings and resistances to corporate power, and so um, if all of that seemed very sort of rational in terms of how I came to this topic. This is partly where the kind of passion about it came from, you know, at the moment that I was choosing this, there was, um, you know, very, um, very impassioned critiques from Colombian trade unions, for example, about uh, Coca-Cola's labor practices um, and um, the kind of impunity around violence against trade unions in, in Colombia, um, similarly environmentalists, communicating critiques of the company's water use, um, in, in places like India, India and elsewhere. Um, and similarly a growing public health critique about the company's marketing of, you know, very sugary beverages to, to young consumers, for example, and what that meant for the health of populations, both in the United States and, you know, various locations around the world, often places, um, or communities that, you know, rely on partnerships with a company with Coca-Cola to get things like, um, you know, chairs for the gymnasium, for example. And so, uh, you know, Coke has a pretty strong presence, um, both in, you know, uh, downtown restaurant advertising, but also in things like public schools and what that means, um, for, uh, an impact on, on community health. Um, and so all those things came together and, uh, suggested that this was the kind of project that both that I would be, you know, excited to write about and could allow me to touch on the kind of various um stories that I see as really important in the history
1: of um the 20th century. Great. Um so what's the what's the business history of of Coca Cola in in Colombia and, and India? How how does the company enter these markets?
0: Yeah, so it's, you know, different stages of its um, international expansion. And so that it seems so I write primarily about these two different locations, which might seem sort of like random locations to other people, but um, it's, it's, it was both strategic for me as a, as a scholar, but also because those stories are so compelling and they're actually really quite impactful in the ways in which the company is, is, um, had to define itself at various moments and continues to define itself. And the part of the argument is that places that seem like peripheral, if we imagine this as like an American company, Atlanta is like this kind of center to it. In fact, there are places that seem quite distant that are actually not peripheral at all. But in fact, um, Really having an impact on how the company is having to to represent itself and think about its business, and that their repercussions then um, for, sort of you know ripples out across um, its its sort of you know kind of global network of business, um, and so that these um, locations are actually really quite quite central to to its business, and so so Colombia both as a as a you know an actual uh, place, right, with a very specific history, um, but is also sort of representative of, of a kind of early moment of expansion uh, for the company. And so, um, especially from the 1920s on, they, they started getting international, like a, at the turn of the 20th century, but really from the 1920s on, uh, it, Coca-Cola took a kind of really um, more... Uh, sort of more aggressive steps right to expand it's um it's it's bottling and it so it's it sort of started um in Colombia and in many other countries that had kind of close kind of trade and i um, frankly colonial right relationships with the with the United States and so the Caribbean um many parts of Latin America but also trade relationships with Canada and the United States for example um and so much of the narrative was basically like U.S. um Uh, Coca-Cola men uh, going into business, right. With um, various kinds of um, economic elites, right. in 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 other countries. And one of the important things about this history is an understanding, which I didn't know going into this, that Coca-Cola doesn't sell most of its soft drinks. Like that's not what its business is. In fact, um, they're, basically in the business of franchising bottling. So they sell the selling of soft drinks to, to people, right? To, to potentially go into business with them. And so they they rely on kind of bottlers and um, parts of, you know, everywhere, basically. Now that head business has changed you know, over the course of time, which I, I can talk about, basically through the consolidation of bottlers and and Coke's like heavy investment and um, kind of encouraging their business to to look certain ways so that it can be most profitable to the to the multinational itself. But basically, it um, you know, Colombian businessmen decided to try to start a kind of bottling company and went into business. You know, and went to like a contractual relationship um, with with uh, Coca Cola to do that. And interestingly, much of this kind of early promotion then to to business people um and then the advertising that those bottlers were putting out into the into the market because that was one of their major contractual responsibilities was to promote this product in a certain way, which basically meant using advertising produced by Coca-Cola in Atlanta or advertising that was approved by Coca-Cola in Atlanta or met the standards right of of their approval. Um, much of that advertising and the kind of You know the relations, the kind of corporate relations produced by Atlanta to sort of sell the business to potential franchisers, sort of all turned on this sort of sense that going into business with Coca-Cola or consuming Coca-Cola was a kind of conduit to a sort of like international capitalist modernity, right? This is a kind of uh, product. It wasn't even sold necessarily or advertised as like an American product, but rather it was a product that was consumed around the world um, and by kind of cool um uh you know, slick consumers um in, in various um parts of the world. Often it would be like European cafes, for example, that were represented in these in these advertisements. And for and and actually they a lot of the advertising in this time period was also about Promoting the drink as a product to be sold in stores locally, and so some of the advertisements were basically like Coke—you know—sells itself. It basically is a kind of self-generating uh, driver of of you know capitalist growth in these locations. And so some of the ads uh, actually projected that, like, to potential um, stores in in Colombia. And so much of that is the kind of like early early history um, in Colombia. That being said, you know, at various moments uh that history was challenged um and one of the big challenges uh came in you know during world war II, uh when obviously the, the the war disrupted a lot and you know the the kind of global depression that preceded it disrupted a lot of business but that was also a moment for potential growth as well um as coca-cola basically became embedded with us military as um, you know they They went to various international locations, and so they had a contract with the U.S. military to provide um, bottled soft drink to U.S. service um, people, servicemen primarily, um, with the sense that it was good for morale, and they even made this argument that it was good for the kind of... like the vital health of and energy levels of of servicemen, and so that was how Coke first got into India, really, right? As um, U.S. servicemen were were in India for World War II, and then after the war, they they stayed, right, and went into business with Indian um, businessmen who actually had also been um, in contractual relationships with the the U.S. Uh, military to provide. Um, well, they they basically made furniture and provided uh, various kinds of um housing for uh us um military men and th- that family, the Singh family actually then went into the business, uh, of selling of bottling and selling Coca-Colas. Cause they, you know, had seen, seen how it worked, um, through the relationship with the U S military. Um, at that point, that kind of post world war two point and, in places that were newly post-colonial like India, right. Which became its own, um, right. Country after world war two, they, the advertising and the the discourse of of how the what benefit the company could be to both um, potential business people that they're going to you know business with or to a nation, right. That was growing and had to decide what its economic policy was in relationship to, to us multinationals and also to potential consumers in those locations, right. To whom the, the drink um, was, was new in many cases, it, it's, it's sort of, it sort of shifted. That became this kind of uh, sort of representation of a kind of multinational developmentalism that sort of wherever Coca-Cola goes, it develops kind of a local and national Economies, um, and so a lot of the advertising at moments, you know, either where they're establishing themselves in, in again, post-colonial countries, for example, like India, uh, often use this this language of of being a kind of national developer. Um, and then when they became really challenged, so like in the case of India in the 1970s, um, when they were kicked out of the company, actually under critiques of um, basically, uh, you know, neocolonialism, the ways of all the profits that were being extracted from from India, you know, sent back to the United States, uh, and demands that the Coca Cola Company Indianize, basically sell a large percentage of its stock right to Indian shareholders and have um, its subsidiary in India be run by by Indians. And and Coca Cola Company refused this; they basically fled right rather than. Um, face this kind of threat of nationalization. But before that, all of the advertising that were putting forth was very much a kind of, um, uh, import substitution industrialization kind of representations and in places like Latin America, right. Which, which, um, in the, the 1960s, um, also had right kind of very strong, uh, right. kind of, um, critiques of what kind of what version of, of development, right. That, that, countries wanted. So in, you know, in the sixties and seventies they often uh had this kind of advertising where it was like, um, you know, not only do we make delicious drinks, but we allow for carpenters to get work because they build our billboards and there'd be all these, you know, an advertisement that would be, you know, a, a gorgeous billboard being built that was both simultaneously an advertisement for the drinks, right? An advertisement for the business itself. And so a lot of the the advertising was that or like the the ways in which, um, you know, local uh, you know, store owners were, were profiting from the sales of, of drinks in their stores. So not people would come in to buy a Coca-Cola and they'd also buy other stuff. Right. And so that we're good, we're good for the economy this way, or that um, you too could potentially be uh, an owner of a Coca-Cola bottling plant as a franchise, you know, franchise person, um, with an advertisement, right. That shows that actually the person who owns your franchise is actually, you know, um, you know, Don Milo down the, down the block, you know, and he lives at X, X address, you know, and they, and they use this, this, um, example from somebody like in, in Panama and they would set, you know, put this advertisement all over the, all over Latin America. But this sort of sense that like your local bottler is actually, you know, a, a bottler who's local to you, which of course is not in most cases was not true. It may have been, partially true. But generally, um, behind that local bottler was a U.S. business partner, right, or a, an investor um, who heavily controlled that. You know, very much the case um, in the history of Colombia, for example. Um, and so, it, you know, it, in various decades, as the history of these places changes and that the history of the needs of the people and you know the governments. Uh, the Coca-Cola company had to had to respond, right. And, um, make new justifications for itself, uh, so that it could continue to, to, to profit in those locations.
1: That's super interesting. Uh, for me, one thing that is, um, fascinating is this idea that multinationals or, um, their products and well, through their, their products and their brands become part of our lives, become part of everyday, um, culture and, um, uh, and so uh, this bridge between cultural history and um, business history is, is, is pretty recent. And I wanted to ask you, how, how does one uh, write a history of, uh, I mean, a business history of a multinational through from a cultural perspective? Um, I think that would be very useful for, for other um, researchers doing this, this kind of work. Oh, it's such a great
0: question, Paula. And it is, it is, I think you're right. And it's kind of remarkable that it is a recent, it feels like it is kind of a recent um, move and it is a sort of recent um, challenge that people, you know, are trying to, to do that. And which is surprising because we know like the cultural turn of the eighties has been happened a long time ago. And, and we're, you know, we've had other conversations, other contexts. We were just talking about Roland Marsh and um, uh, in a, in a, previous conversation. And there is really just powerful work, um, that has been done about the ways in which, um, and, and obviously it goes back to some of the earliest political economists, right. Who are trying to think about the, like Marx, for example, about the role of culture, um, in, in ideology or for helping, you know, to kind of buttress a kind of political economic system. Um, and, you know, different scholars have, 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 Uh, thought about the role of culture, um, in, in, um, business history in different ways. I think for me, what was, what was, what was very helpful, is thinking about how, and I think it's different, obviously based on different companies. And I do think that this kind of specificity is important, right? Thinking about specific industries and specific companies and how it plays out um, for them. Um, As well as, I do think there's arguments for like thinking about ideology as like a social totality, you know, as well, like a sort of totality of social relations um, in a specific political economy. So I do think there's a value to that. But for people who are doing kind of, you know, a real serious engagement, you know, to make an argument, um, provide evidence for perhaps some of those kind of larger theorizations by doing a kind of close analysis of, of particular industries, particular companies, um, within business history. I, I think that's really important. And so for, for Coca-Cola, w- you know, one of the, the, you know, important kind of clarifying mo- insights for me was this sense that, um, that the kind of actual material production of the the drinks themselves, right? And this, the sales of those drinks, et cetera, the whole kind of business of the drink, you know, of, of, of its industry would not be possible. And in fact, is secondary to its actual production, which is which is cultural <laughs> production right that the actual work of the company is in the branding and the marketing and the advertising and right the contractual relations between right bottlers the defense the creation of and defense of intellectual property that that is actually the business of a company like like coca-cola and we know in some ways case we know this when we think about um there's other franchises that franchisers that's sort of more obvious. Like we think of like McDonald's, right. Or sort of franchise, um, uh, fast food restaurants, which are really a product of like the 1950s on or, or an earlier franchise franchise system, which was you know, gas stations for example that's a kind of classic study that people have have done um in the past but that there were corporations that were innovating this in industries that, that we don't think of um as franchises you know franchising um companies before this and and coca-cola is an example of that singer right as you know it's in some degrees you know sort of an example of, you know other companies where they had um like independent, I think this is the case of Singer. I'm not sure, but the companies are, um, they had sort of inter- independent, um, sales, right. Of, of, uh, like offices and that provided sales and service, for example, to frequent, like, you know, uh, big ticket, um, big ticket uh, durable goods, for example, but Coca-Cola, um, you know, was a very early innovator of this. And it's, it's, so I, th- I think it's really helpful um, to think about the ways in which, you know, what I, what I talk about as the Im- immaterial production, right. This, the, the production of contracts and intellectual property of advertising and marketing um, as being really the business of the, of the company uh, that, the, you know, the, the jokes um, it, that, you know, Peter Drucker, the kind of classic, uh, you know, marketing business scholar would, which would, would joke that Coca-Cola is really, um, I think the joke was that Coca-Cola is really just an advertiser with, you know, uh, access to a distribution system, right. That that it's real, real business is as an advertiser. And the Coke executives themselves would, would, they, they made an announcement once. I remember at a bottlers convention, and I remember reading this in the archive that, uh, that if, you know, basically some cataclysmic event happened and they lost all their bottlers all at once. Right. And all of their, all the material manifestations of their business, right. All their, all the, the drinks and the, the, uh, bottles and the, but most importantly, like all the, the factories that make Coke the next day, they could go into a bank and get a loan to like reproduce the business, right. Immediately just on the value, right. Of its trademark, the kind of, you know, the kind of goodwill, um, that, uh, have been imbued into that trademark, and so it really is like it's it's that it, that kind of I I think that kind of kind of cultural historical right and cultural studies perspective um, onto this business really clarifies right how how it functions and it helps kind of open up a sense of like how how power functions within this um, and it means that. A lot of these texts, right, that in some ways are are joyful and um, make us happy and are wonderful, are also like they they are the like lifeblood of how this system works, right? Of how this corporation functions, right? And so then they we can we need to think about them critically, both because they serve a kind of critical function, um in in this business.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think actually, yeah, Coca Cola and Ford are. Pioneer, pioneers in, in mm. this franchising because um, all the stores um, that Singer had around the world were were owned by them. Oh, that's um, right. So
0: Singer and International Harvester functioned ex- that uh, way. Thing. Right. They owned it themselves. Right. That's true. Yeah, so... <laughs> so and, oh, sorry.
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No. So that's super interesting because definitely, I mean, the, the relationship between between those who sell and those who own the trademark or the product changes right with with, um if you have a certain responsibility for for i mean you have to pay (laughs) the parent company (laughs) right right
0: Um, and yeah so coke is right it 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 profits from these from these financial relationships like in some ways and it it uncovering this history then becomes it we get much clearer roots to some kind of contemporary concerns and issues of of um you know of how industries work. And so like, we, we suddenly see like the history of outsourcing or even the history of kind of like platform capitalism, right. Or financial capitalism very differently when we see that it's actually rooted right in these practices of the late 19th century, you know, um, that up the ones, you know, that had emerged. And so that they now, you know, profit from products that have, like appear to be Indian alone. Right. Which is, which is sort of interesting. Um, but again, when Coke went back, a lot of their advertising was about the kind of um, Indianness of Coke, right. That like, like that they were um, they were no longer kind of like a, a U.S. product alone, but that they represented this kind of like India rising right as a kind of um, and its consumers as kind of global citizens. You know, after the kind of uh, the kind of version of states, you know, as uh, or state capitalism really, but the kind of you know versions of socialisms that had existed in, in India um, in the seventies and eighties that now. You know, it was kind of free market India, and Coke was this, you know, um, entrance for people into kind of a, a global consumption, global citizenship kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting they've had to navigate, but that materiality is super interesting because it is—it's uh, you know, the these are actual products in in the world, in people's hands, right? There's like kind of like relationship to them. And with Coke, it is, it's like, it's very visceral. It's actually like imbibed, right? It, like you, you drink it and it becomes sort of like, sort of part of you. And I think one of the things that's really interesting in the ways in which both ads play on that, right? Like literally it's the, you know, like, we can, I, because I've watched so many of them, I can hear like the bottle opening and the like effervescence, right, and the gulping that these ads sort of really emphasize. You know, the the sort of like actual sensory experience of of being with these products, um, but that activists, so the 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 company plays on that, but activists sort of play on it too. This sort of sense that um, that you know, an Indian environmentalist may be far away. From um, where you are it, here in Urbana, Illinois, as been, many student activists were involved in this campaign against um, Coke's water usage in the 2000s, early 2000s, um, but that you consume the same product that we do, you know, in India, um, you you have a, a financial relationship with the company. In this case, it was that actually, right? Coke was had the exclusive rights to selling products on on our campus and you know what I mean had billboards all over campus sponsored <laughs> by the company that we're part of the sort of same network you know that we are holding like the same feeling bottles in our hands, you know, we can make claims on each other about a kind of interrelationship. And so it's interesting the ways in which they um, they kind of play on that. A lot of the advertising is about like making the product itself sort of like toxic or dangerous. And so, um, you know, making Coca-Cola bottles look like Molotov cocktails or one of the classic um, radical forms of, of art. In Brazil, in uh, the 1970s, was this fabulous kind of inscription that an artist would make. Uh, it would scratch into the Coca-Cola bottles that were then returned into circulation. So when they're empty, you couldn't see it. But once they're filled up with the Coke against the, you know, the kind of blackish brown background you'd see directions for how to turn the bottle into a molotov cocktail or like statements like yankee go home you know what i mean so that the, using that kind of materiality and the sort of network of connections that we have with these bottles and our consumption of you know what's inside them um, is a kind of
1: really fascinating aspect of a kind of
0: commodity history uh, mm-hmm. yeah
1: that's wonderful I, um to start wrapping up I wanted to to ask you about the research process and um, not too long ago I um, interviewed Mira Wilkins dr. Mira Wilkins and decades ago right she she did this travel from country to country talking to to um, corporate men and um, talking about, their companies and how they had built them and um and to me it's always fascinating to you know this transnational history uh projects how how much um and all the challenges that that there are to do the archival research part and the oral histories because you have to travel you have to to speak the languages you you need money for that um so if you can explain a little bit how you know how that worked for you and um and how how you know what kind of sources did you use or were more useful for for each of the of the regions that you studied
0: the process i know it's yeah and and I thank Mira Wilkins because I use the emergence of multinational enterprise in this pro like that work is still helpful you know it's very very helpful um so uh and she was doing it in the sixties and and earlier so um you know i so um for me uh i well firstly I should say I relied on a lot of help from people who came before me, so that's the that's the like a first very um important bit so um I I benefited both from the scholarship of anthropologists but also their um k- their relationships with people. So Leslie Gill who is an anthropologist of Colombia who um has worked for a long time um with various labor unions but um Csinofina one of the labor uni- the coke labor unions um and others uh, was was really helpful and and um you know Establishing relation, you know what I mean. Introducing me to people, and um, the a great thing about working with, with labor unions is that, and a, a, a kind of national union is that that means like in, in the various cities where they have locals, they there's people <laughs> there, you know what I mean, who will who will ha- house you. I stayed, you know, I, I stayed with um, people in their homes, and um, will you know they have they have union halls where you can interview people, etc. But then of course you have to go beyond that as well. Right. And, and talk to, to other folks in the community and, um, uh, to get the, the, the kind of local histories. And so, but, but that was just thinking about the kind of people who, for whom I, um, owe a lot to, to make that happen. Um, I got very lucky in Colombia, both, um, you know, the great libraries there. Uh, so, um, I had an affiliation with the, um, the Luis Angel Arango library in Bogota, um, you know, where I lived for several months. And so that provided a, just a, a great location for the kind of periodicals work I needed to do. And a lot of the business history, um, sources, um uh, were there and allowed me to, to have Bogota as a, you know, as, as obviously, um, uh, you know, as the capital, people coming in and out and doing interviewing. And then I, I traveled to, I think it was like seven different, um, cities in Colombia to do uh, various, um, interviews and look at various archives. So Medellin was a very important archival location for me. Um, and, uh, Barranquilla, um, as well just to trace some of the older history. Cause those are some of the first locations of like active Coke plants, for example. Um, in India, I similarly, uh, I was, I was helped cause I don't speak any Indian languages. And so that was a real challenge. Much of the business history in India was in English. And so that made it very helpful. A lot of Coke's, you know, current business, you know, business, um, in India was conducted in English. And so I was able to do that. But the sort of community histories, um, when I was in Kerala, I worked with a, a business, a business, um, study scholar who was also who was working on a kind of contemporary, um, project on, um, Coke and water and sort of corporate social responsibility. And so I partnered with her, which was great. So, this, so she conducted, um, the, um, the, the interviews and did simultaneous translation for, uh, you know, for me. And so that was really helpful. And then I hired a translator when I was in, in Uttar Pradesh. Um, and so, uh, and I, I lived with this family and, you know, we went to the, the community every day and did um, interviews and oral histories there. Uh, but that was, you know, it's a sort of a limitation and a, a challenge um, for that. But I felt like it was, for, for all of its deficits, I felt like it was so important to do. And I think some people talk about, in the case of the in case of India, they they or there's a risk of of talking about it as an example without um, being based in the location and doing your best, right to understand um, the specificity of um, and people's actual lived experiences and what they are expressing, you know about being there. And that's something I've tried to learn from from anthropologists. Um, the the corporate connections were in some ways, the easiest and hardest to get, in that um, Coke has this policy as part of their kind of corporate social responsibility shift, which I talk about in the book of engaging with activists and scholars, and they do up to a degree, right? And so they're like the official people who all gave me the official interviews, and then it was like trying to get sort of deeper uh, levels of engagement, and so that was a, a kind of ongoing challenge. Um, as I, I've mentioned to you in other contexts, I. Um, was granted a small grant from the Yale um, International and Area Studies Center is what it was called at the time period. And it was chosen by professors at Yale. So I didn't have any connection to the Coke company, but it was called the Coca-Cola World Fund Grant. And other business historians um, like Bethany Morton, who wrote that great book on Walmart, who had gotten it before me, um, and again, really cr- critical, radical business historians. And so I you know, I kind of felt conflicted about taking it. And then um, she and other Mentors were basically like, "This is this might be your golden ticket to talk to people who you would otherwise not talk to you," and it's true to some degree. It did like I, it helped um, get me some introductions um, to various kind of Coke corporate folks. So um, it was a real challenge. Oh, sorry. Then much more specifically, for anyone who wants to do work on Coke, um, the Library of Congress has the largest hold public holdings of a corporate archive. Um, when the Coke company made the, again, largest donation of corporate um, materials to the Library of Congress. Um, and so uh, you can get tremendous access to advertising and marketing um, materials there. And so that's a great source. At Emory University has a ton of um, executives' materials. Um, so that's a, also a great place for archival research in, in the United States on Coke, if, if you can't actually get access to Coke, Coke corporate itself, which has become very, very restrictive.
1: Yeah fantastic yeah that's great fantastic because that's that's useful i didn't know about the um library of congress one so i will make sure i include that in in our project in our other project um so um i think this is a great uh, point to conclude i highly recommend reading um amanda's Book uh, to anyone interested in knowing more about the history of the global economy, of the multinational enterprise, of the relation between consumption and production, from a transnational perspective. Um, about marketing and advertising, and and all uh, this, the role in globalization and in uh, the globalization of consumption. Um, so these are only th- some of the topics that her book touches upon. I also very much encourage um, people to check out, um, if you don't have the book yet, to check out Professor Siafond's additional and research materials uh, related to her book. Um, Is They are available in a project that I believe she's created on Escalar. And... Um, it has more on sources and, and a little bit more of uh, about uh, the history of, of the company in in Colombia and India. And um, I believe Amanda Siafon is now currently working on a new book project on the relationship between technology and old age. And um, this sounds like a fascinating topic too. And thank you so much for being here today with me. Thanks so much, Paola. Thanks for having me. <laughs> This has been uh, it for today's episode and on the New Box in Economic and Business History channel on the New Box network I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. I do work for um, the Business History Conference uh, to promote work on business in business history. So please contact me or reach out at um, on Twitter at cruzmosu c r u z m o s u and um, or at Uh, the Business History Conference, Twitter, at the BHC News for more episodes on this. And um, thank you again, and see you next time.